Our gospel reading this morning comes from the 17th chapter of St. John. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus offered a prayer for his disciples, but also for the world, for you and for me. Uh, It's a prayer that's been known throughout time as the high priestly prayer, a prayer of unity, remarkably apropos um, for times like these. So hear these words, this prayer of Jesus. Jesus said, Lord, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know you, know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, happy Memorial Day weekend to you. We hope that you uh, are preparing yourselves for what will be a beautiful day and weekend. It looks like it's going to be great weather and by the way, uh, Rosemary, I hope you didn't think I was comparing you to waffles. I, that, that all of a sudden didn't sound very good. I, I, I hope you understood the spirit in which it was shared. But nevertheless, good to see you and Carl today. Memorial Day weekend was coming up, and a preschool teacher wanted to take, take advantage of, of the uh, holiday and to sh- teach her class a little bit about patriotism. We live in a great country, she told them. One of the things that we should be happy about is that in this country, we are all free. Well, one little boy stood up, put his hands on his hands, went up to the teacher and said, Teacher, I am not free. I am for. (laughs) Memorial Day. As you know, Memorial Day is a day that we set aside to remember those who have died in service to our country, but I think it is reasonable, if not entirely the purpose of Memorial Day, but reasonable nevertheless to remember those who served their country but have died most recently. For example, in the past year, uh, we remember military heroes like Colin Powell. General Powell died this past year. Remarkable man, a first African-American to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of State, and then, of course, our community's good friend, Bob Dole, who died last December. We know so much of his story, but important to remember again on days like these. Bob Dole was a phenomenal athlete. He was on basketball and football scholarship at the University of Kansas when Pearl Harbor um, sort of wrecked havoc on this world, and he immediately left school and and enrolled in, in service. He served heroically in World War II, terribly wounded in the northern mountains of, of Italy just two weeks before the war would officially be over. He spent over two years in a hospital. It was a spinal cord injury, j- just learning to walk again, but he did. He was able to finish school, college, law school, eventually ran for Congress in 1960, he became a senator in 68, I guess, and served as a senator from Kansas for 27 years. He ran for president, as you know, in 1996. 
My son Matt and I visited his home in Kansas last January, so thankful for his humility, his, his humor, his honor. Today we remember him and all those who stood willing to give their all for the sake of this country, for the sake of this world, for the sake of the other. Today is also the final Sunday in our Turn sermon series, when we've looked into the stories of some early Christians and saw how a relationship with Jesus dramatically turned their lives around. Our last story today, uh, the one that, that Larry shared, is a classic one from the book of Acts. It's the story of two men, Paul and Silas, who are thrown into the innermost cell of a Roman prison. It was a dark, dark time in their lives. And so today, I'd like to explore how God brings freedom even in the darkest, even in the most frightening of times and places. And so we are in Acts chapter 16. I'm sure Dr. Sloop is disappointed today that I'm not focusing on his favorite Bible verse from John 17 in the High of Priestly Prayer. Sorry about that, Dr. Sloop. I'll do that another day. But today, we're in Acts chapter 16. Um, the story begins in the streets of Philippi. Philippi is a fantastic place. It's a, it's a bustling Greek city that's overlooking the, the Aegean Sea. Uh, the Apostle Paul is traveling with a man named Silas. They are trying to make their way into uh, Philippi, which means it's sort of an entryway, a gateway into Europe, and they're eager to share the gospel into to Europe. But there's someone that's confronting them. Actually, all of chapter 18 or 16 is showing sort of some confrontations, some barriers, roadblocks that are placed before Paul and their entrance into Europe. And, and one of them is a, a slave girl, of all things, who, who is possessed by an evil spirit. This slave girl confronts them. Now, now the slave girl is, is doubly bound, bound by, by her, the evil spirit that has possessed her, but also by being a slave, right? And, and her slave owners have seen that she has this odd gift of telling the future. So they made a lot of money off of the slave girl to tell the future. But what Paul saw was a, a girl who had an evil spirit dwelling within her. So he frees her from the spirit. Good news, right? Well, yeah, for her, but not for, not for the men, her owners, because now they didn't have a source of income through her, so they were furious. And, and so they stirred up the crowd. They had them flogged and stripped and beaten. They accused them of insurrection, important, uh, and thrown into a Roman prison, the innermost cell of a Roman prison, which, as you know, means no windows, right? It, it, it's dark, no light, and they're shackled to the walls. Brutal. Now, what happens next is, is what Larry shared with us in the first reading, an earthquake, prisoners set free, uh, a surprising and fantastic response. It's an incredible story, I think, don't you think? Fit for a movie. Well, today I'd like to focus on a couple of things. And the first is the charge that has been placed upon Paul and Silas, this charge of insurrection. It, it's not something that Roman society took lightly. In fact, uh, if guilty, then the penalty was death. And oftentimes, they would, they would allow the prisoner to choose their own kind of death. So, the options they had, beheading, crucifixion, slow bleed, being thrown into a den of wild animals. The emperor loved that particular choice, as it turns out. So that's what Paul and Silas are doing. That's what they're thinking about as they're sitting in that innermost cell, as they're waiting in prison. It's 
midnight. So it's already dark in that cell, but midnight means there's no light at all. It's the darkest point of, of, of the night. Their skin is stinging from, from being beaten to a pulp. The whole community has turned against them. Psalm 22 calls this a place of nadir, N-A-D-I-R. Say that word with me, nadir. It, nadir is the lowest point someone can go. An alcoholic crashes his car uh, and kills the, the other driver. Uh, a businessman is, is picked up for embezzlement. Someone who's facing severe depression and the depths of their soul um, are challenged with suicide. King David, as it turns out in the Old Testament, wrote about his nadir experience when, when folks found out about his affair, his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He was devastated. He was loaded with guilt, couldn't believe that he had fallen so far. He's a king, and he's fallen this far. So he wrote these words, Psalm 22, I am a worm. I'm not even a human. I'm scorned by others. I'm despised. All who see me mock me. Bulls and circle me. Evildoers surround me. They stare and gloat. They divide my clothes among themselves. That is nadir. It's a place of utter despair, a place of utter loneliness. It can be brought on by lots of things, maybe by physical abuse. It can be brought on by emotional anguish, by horrible situation in your life, by, or a destroyed relationship. I mean, no doubt, parents of the children killed in Uvalde, Texas are facing their own nadir at this very moment. Their children will never walk to school again. They're in the innermost cell of anguish, sleepless nights, worrying that they will never, ever escape. That's where Paul and Silas are in this moment. In fact, the first two words of verse 25, take a look in your reading, if you will, either in your bulletin or in your Bibles. The first two words amplify this situation. Those two words, what? About what? Midnight. Interesting. Midnight, again, is the darkest part of the night. When you feel like it's the end of your story, you feel hopeless, like there's no future worth living for. But in this story, thanks be to God, there's a surprise. In fact, let's keep reading in verse 25. We read about midnight. Paul and Silas are praying, surprised, and singing hymns to God, doubly surprised. And the other prisoners, they're listening which is amazing, isn't it? I mean, Paul and Silas have, have all of a sudden been able to shift the emotional energy from hopelessness to hopefulness, from despair to encouragement, which, as it turns out, is the story of faith. Ours, a faith of new beginnings. Ours is a faith of, of new life. There's a great story of… Uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon's friendship that Kristen and I had a chance to learn when we were in Liverpool. I encourage you to go visit Liverpool. Uh, the Magical Mystery Tour is something you need to take if you're ever in, in that part of the world. Great tour about the Beatles. Anyway, this is a story of uh, McCartney and Lennon's friendship. It began when they were teenagers in Liverpool, a year after McCartney's mom had died, and a year before Lennon's mom was hit and killed by a car uh, just outside their front door. Lennon was only 17 years of age, and he, he always called it the most traumatic moment in his life. He was beyond sad. He was angry. He didn't speak to anybody for three months, except when he would walk a half a mile across the field to his friend Paul's house, the only guy who knew his pain because his mom 
likewise had died. When Paul was, was only 14, his mom had died of breast cancer. Uh, so they would sit on the stoop, so oftentimes in total silence, uh, the stoop of Paul's home. And there, in that moment, in the darkness of their life, their own anguish, they felt like they were the only two people in the world who could understand exactly what was going on in their own lives. But in that moment is when they would write nearly a hundred songs. All were born of tragedy, songs that Paul McCartney called therapy, but what we call some of the best music in music history. At midnight, amidst the darkness of their soul, they sang songs and others listened. Until verse 26, suddenly, you see, suddenly an earthquake shatters or shakes the foundations of the prison. The doors opened up and everybody's chains are fastened, uh, unfastened. You're assuming that all the prisoners, heck yeah, man, this is the time to, to get the heck out of Dodge, to escape. It's our moment. But when the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he likewise assumed that the prisoners had escaped. A dramatic moment, I'd say. And in this moment, this third character appears. See, up until this moment, we really have only learned of Paul and Silas, but now we learn about this jailer who suddenly is facing his own nadir. What is that nadir moment in his life? He's, he has a decision that he's got to make, a decision whether or not to take his own life. Suicide is what we're talking about. Tough subject. The U.S. Navy reported the other week that four sailors had taken their own lives on the USS George Washington there's been a 30% increase in suicides in the last 20 years. 47,000 people take their own lives in the United States every year. It's the second leading cause of death among young adults, 70% of whom are young men. And if you're in the LGBTQ community, you are four times more likely to take your own life, mainly because of struggles faced when coming out to family and friends. If you've faced the suicide of a family member or a friend, you know that it's a pain that never goes away. You know that these are questions that are never answered, principally, why? Endless nights, sleepless nights, we are asking yourself that question, why? Why did he do it? Why did she do it? What could I have done? What did I not do? Why couldn't I have responded in a different way? Why did they not come to me? What? Why? How? For whatever reason, this jailer feels like suicide is his own option. Inner voices that are telling him that he has no choice. You know, right, that this jailer is in his own place of aloneness and darkness. He is all by himself, right? And, and so, when you're in, in that place of utter darkness, these inner voices begin to trick you, begin to, to speak to you that he's bad at his job, that his family would be better off without him, that he's worthless. These inner voices, these lies that are pushing him towards that decision. The question we would ask is why is he believing those lies? In the Old Testament, Satan is described as the influencer, described as the accuser whose purpose is to accuse you of false things in hope of separating you from the truth. In Hebrew, the word is hasatan, where we get the word Satan, 
from. The accuser who fills you with lies about unworthiness, about being unlovable, about, about not being pretty enough, not smart enough, about not anything, of, that you're no, of, of no value whatsoever. Why do we believe those voices? What is it that causes us to listen so carefully to that inner voice of the accuser? Why? Because Hasatan has great experience occupying the innermost selves of our lives. And when we are alone, friends, when we are alone is when we tend to believe the story the influencer tells us. What are we to do? And of course, a question that I'm particularly interested in, what is the church to do? Well, Paul gives us a clue. Now, there are several things that Paul suggests, but this one in particular, I think, is worth mentioning. Verse 28, take a look. When the sword was in the jailer's hand, I imagine when the sharp edge already piercing his chest, Paul says, what does he say? Don't harm yourself. We are here. We're here, he says. Now, the voice inside his head, the jailer said, is trying to convince him that he was all alone, right? But Paul shared a different story. He introduced a different narrative. You're not alone, he said. And, and for whatever reason, thanks be to God, it was enough. I don't know why, but it was. In that particular moment, it was enough for the jailer to put down his sword. Just two words, we're here. But in those two words is a profound truth. We are never alone, there's a passage in the 41st chapter of Isaiah that is so very beautiful, the 13th verse. It says this, I am the Lord your God. I am holding your hand, so don't be afraid. What a beautiful promise. And as it turns out, it's a promise that's persistent throughout Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. I mean, think of the story of Jesus. By the time He had been dragged off and, and beaten and, and, and crucified, His disciples, they didn't know what to do. They were scared. They were frightened. And, and they were scattered. They, all of a sudden, the, the twelve of them were alone in their own despair. But after His resurrection, Jesus tracked them down, gathered them together, and offered that same promise to them, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, the God who loved you enough to die for you is not going to abandon you, ever. We're here, Paul says. You're not alone. <laughs> it strikes me. What difference might those two words have made if Judas would have heard them before betraying Jesus? What difference would it have made if those four sailors on the USS George Washington would have heard those words before committing suicide? What difference would it have made if Salvador Ramos would have heard those words before entering Robb Elementary School in Evalde, Texas? Now, now look, I, I'm fully aware that that's a far more complicated story and situation, and, and, and it's far more complicated than to assume that only two words are going to correct all of the challenges and evils of the day. Mental illness, other challenges can make those words to some feel meaningless. I get that. And yet, what if Paul's message to the jailer became the persistent message of the church? We're here. 
No matter who you are, we're here. You are not alone. We are here. No matter what challenge you face, we will hold your hand. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned because we're here with you together. As Joshua told his people, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid because the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And neither will we. As Paul will later say to his friends in Rome, these words, profound, a reminder that nothing in all of creation, nothing in all of creation will separate us from the eternal presence of God and the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. So when Christians proclaim, we're here, it comes with all of that divine promise. When Christians proclaim, we're here, it comes with all of that divine hope and possibility. May those words forever be on our lips. Will you whisper them with me? We're here. Amen.